we, as members of the species Homo sapien, act. Simple enough statement, right? People act. After all, it is the nature of that action and the choices or motivations behind them which we're here to study. But why? Because it is action that is at the epicenter of all that is good and bad, right and wrong, constructive and destructive. It is action that determines whether we succeed or we fail, whether we move or we stay, or whether we build or we destroy. Even inaction is often considered to be as powerful as action. You can make a powerful statement by saying nothing, they say. Or, this happened because you did nothing. Have you heard this? Is this observable? But how can we know if what we're doing, if our actions, are right? And how can we know if even the method that we use to determine right and wrong is right? For example, there have been civilizations in the past in which the sacrifice of animals or even human children to an angry god was not only required, but morally right. Is that what makes something right? Popular belief? Or perhaps it's consensus. As long as the majority of the expert class agrees, that makes something right. Or voting. As long as the majority of the populace agrees that something is right, it is. What about the 120-foot longhouse that's being built using two carpenters? One building the front, the other building the back of the house. Who is right when the front and the back of the house are not the same length? Because the front carpenter has large feet with which to measure, and the back carpenter is a shorter, smaller man with smaller feet. And who is right when it turns out that neither of the two carpenters has the same sized foot as the tribal chief? So what is right and what is wrong objectively? How can we know objectively and how can we measure it objectively? Is that even possible when it comes to society? And does it really even matter? In order for us to determine this, it will be necessary to refer to concepts or use words for which we have no definitional agreement. In the last episode of the podcast, we discussed in some detail the fact that we continually use and historically used words that do not have consistent empirical meanings. If your waiter says that he'll be with you momentarily, the expression on his face when you, as rapidly as you can, blurt out your entire table's order may be funny to behold, but no real damage has been done. Incidentally, the word momentarily means for a moment, not in a moment. But again, no real damage has been done. But when we have discussions around the concept of such things like my body, my choice, and we find later that we were really discussing my body, your choice, well, now we've got a problem. And this is what is required in a science, a universal language devoid of ambiguity, confusion, and interpretation. We must have a razor-sharp criterion between what a word is and what it is not. And we must have a method to determine whether something is that thing or is not that thing with both measurable precision 
and hopefully accuracy. Hey, I'm Scotty, and welcome to the Rational Apprentice Podcast, where we innovate actual working solutions to humanity's problems through the application of the scientific method. We also discuss and practice things like logic and logical argumentation, reasoning and evidence, the unknown, forgotten, or underappreciated scientists and philosophers in our history, and of course, the mind over murder case of the week. Our subject is the pyramid of meaning, so let's get right into it. Today I'm going to read for you a paper entitled An Improved Definition of Coercion, written in 2017 by Richard Boren, who's a contributor over at thevoluntarius.com and a student of Golombos in the 1970s. I must say that this is an absolutely brilliant, beautiful paper. It's not only well written, but Mr. Boren's improved definition is well thought out and well derived. Now, some of the concept here may be a little above our pay grade, simply because, after all, this is only episode three of the Rational Apprentice podcast. But there are direct quotes from recordings of Galambos' lectures, and those quotes I feel more than make up for it. Well, you'll see. I'll add some audio engineering trickery to make it a little more obvious when Mr. Boren is actually quoting the lectures. Here we go. Andrew J. Galambos defined coercion as any attempted intentional interference with property. I believe that this definition can be improved, and I offer a proposed improvement here. This paper is primarily meant to be read by people who have considerable knowledge of volitional science. But unless you regularly spend time thinking about what Galambos taught, the details might be a little, or a lot, fuzzy. Therefore, some of them will be reproduced here to provide context and refresh memories. To set the stage, I'll offer some excerpts from the first few minutes of his 1967-68 delivery of Course V50, which was transcribed, edited, and released in 1999 as Sic Ator Ad Astra, Latin for This is the Way to the Stars. I urge even those who are already very familiar with these words to read them again. First of all, this course is on freedom. That's a very frightful term to use, and sometimes I almost shudder to mention it. I have occasionally given this course without mentioning that it's about freedom until it becomes obvious, because the word freedom is so trite, so cheap, so commonplace that everyone uses the term. Therefore, it loses its luster simply from overuse by people who don't know what it means. Now, let me ask you, how many of you are for freedom? And how many of you are against freedom? See, now that's what I mean. All of you are for freedom, and none of you is against freedom, which is, of course, exactly what I expected. The point is that freedom is a cheap term on the surface because everybody is ostensibly for it. Talk is cheap. Freedom is not cheap. True freedom is an absolute concept. It is the same for all people. It is not subject to reinterpretation, misinterpretation, abuse, and transference of meaning from paragraph to paragraph, from person to person, from day to day, from year to year. Freedom is an absolute, permanent concept. Now, the problem is, what is freedom? Where do you find such a definition? Before this evening is over, that's one of the things you will have. 
a definition of freedom that will be universal, absolute, and permanent, and will not be injurious to anyone. Let's start defining the term freedom. Let's start the ball rolling. At the moment, I cannot yet directly define freedom because there is another word that is used in the definition of freedom, which also requires a definition. This is similar to physics in that you can't define velocity or acceleration unless you first define length and time. Unfortunately, length and time are not definable very easily because they are fundamental units out of which all physical units are built. There is only one way to handle a definition of something like length or time in physics. It's called an operational definition. Actually, operational definitions are the strongest definitions of all. An operational definition is one that distinguishes the thing that is being defined from everything else by specifying the procedure whereby you determine what it is. To define length, you specify how to measure it. To define time, the only way you can do it in physics is to specify the technique of measuring it. So I should define a term before I define freedom, and that term is called property. Freedom requires a definition of property because it depends on it. If Galambos did nothing else for his students, he sensitized them to the importance of having precise definitions and taught them which type of definition is best. He followed his own advice and in his lectures used a precisely defined, internally consistent vocabulary to describe familiar concepts so that all could understand what he meant when he used words such as freedom. The goal was the attainment of his vision of freedom, and he believed that it could only be reached if property was treated properly. He defined property for his students in this class by reading out loud his 1963 essay, Thrust for Freedom, number two, commenting on it as he went. The essay gives us the first formulation of his definition of property. Property is a volitional being's life and all non-procreative derivatives thereof. This definition will be used throughout this course. The entire theory of volitional science depends on it. This is an operational definition. Property in volitional science is just as fundamental as mass is in physics, and the definition is operational. Alvin Lowi Jr., Columbus's close associate in the early 1960s, says that he was present at the formulation of this definition and is responsible for the important phrase non-procreative, which means that children are not property. Columbus identified three types of property and gave them names. First is primordial property, your life. Second is primary property, your thoughts, your ideas, and your actions. And last is secondary property, these are your tangible items, the things you have, tables, chairs, toasters. In my opinion, the property definition is excellent, and volitional science rests on a strong foundation. Based on Columbus's explanation of operational definitions, I believe that his definition of property satisfies the requirement of making a clear distinction between property and everything else, and this is workable. Now, please note that this is not a claim that there can be no better definition. With a definition of property in hand, Galambos could then define freedom. 
Freedom is the societal condition wherein every individual has full 100% control over their own property. Now, a side note here. Galambos likened freedom to the 100% thermodynamic efficiency of the ideal Carnot engine, both of which can be approached asymptotically. The Carnot engine is a subject that we will discuss in more detail in future episodes of the Rational Apprentice podcast, but for now, it's enough to understand that the Carnot engine is an ideal, perfectly efficient engine, something that cannot exist, but can only be targeted as a goal. Okay, let's continue with Mr. Bourne's paper. Galambos believed that the application of his ideas for the treatment of property would bring about freedom, with the resultant benefits of eliminating most violence and poverty and ensuring a just and durable society, to include the survival of our species. He promoted his ideas as scientific, calling them volitional science, and believed that he had done something of monumental significance, as evidenced by this quote from Session 2 of V50. What I call the integration of a science is accomplished by identifying a set of initial propositions which are called postulates. They are also called axioms, but I prefer postulates. If you can find a set of postulates from which everything else in that entire science can be derived, then the subject is called an integrated science. In this course, there is an integration of volitional science comparable to and intellectually derivable from and dependent upon Isaac Newton's integration of physical science, which is why the Newtonian work is of importance to what we're doing here. Is it true that Columbus's achievement is comparable to that of Newton? Is it even true that it's an achievement at all? Time will tell whether the two postulates he identified and the conclusions he drew from them will produce the results he claimed they would. Anecdotal evidence, some scientific evidence, and my personal experience and thought experiments lead me to be optimistic. We can begin by ensuring that his definitions stand up under close examination. So let's look at the subject of this paper, coercion. The stated goal of Galambos's proposed property-based social system was to produce freedom, a condition where owners have total control of their property. The word control was defined as the ability to make volitional decisions concerning the disposition of property. Galambos identified the greatest threat to freedom as coercion, which he defined as any attempted intentional interference with property. Unfortunately, he did not precisely define intentional and did not define interference at all. These things will be done here. First, the word intentional has been met by some with skepticism. They ask how we can know whether an act was intentional when even so-called lie detector machines are not reliable. And without being able to determine intent, a definition that uses the word cannot be an operational definition. This is a legitimate concern. However, in session 12 of V50, which he called the Justice Lecture, Galambos defined intent in a way that makes it determinable and establishes its place in the system of market justice. 
In contrast to his standard practice of offering precise definitions of words, he did not do that for intent. In this case, his approach was to say that there are two kinds of intent, psychological intent and operational intent. To demonstrate this, he gave hypothetical examples in which property was damaged, calling them operational clarification. From those examples, I extracted the operations by which intent is measured. Suppose that someone damages someone else's property. If that was his goal, then he had psychological intent and he committed a crime. On the other hand, the damage might have been accidental. In that case, there was no psychological intent and no crime was committed. In both cases, property was damaged and restitution is required. The problem facing a justice system is that only the person who caused the damage knows whether that was the outcome he sought. The solution lies in his subsequent actions, which will demonstrate his operational intent. If he makes restitution, then he has not committed a crime, even if his original psychological intent was to cause damage. According to Galambos, the act of making restitution erases that psychological intent and replaces it with non-criminal operational intent. For the person who lacked psychological intent but accidentally caused damage, willful failure to make restitution will establish criminal operational intent. Operational intent is measured in terms of actions taken, allowing it to be used in the system of market justice that Columbus proposed. Now we come to interference. Despite the seeming criticality to his definition, Galambos did not define either interfere or interference. Perhaps he decided that a special definition was not needed for his theory. After all, everyone seems to understand what it means to interfere with someone or something. Commonly used synonyms are prevent, impede, obstruct, hinder, inhibit, restrict, and constrain. But as he taught, precise definitions are always needed in scientific endeavors. To set the stage for a definition of interference, it's helpful to note something about freedom as Galambos defined it. We must recognize that freedom is not about the quantity or value of property owned by someone. Freedom is about the control of that property. Freedom requires that owners of property have full, 100% control of it. And what is ownership? In the Galambos vocabulary, it is the total, permanent, and moral control of property. The opposite of freedom would be for an owner to have no, zero percent control over his property. The word Galambos chose for this is the familiar word slavery, which he defined as the control of property without the permission of the owner. Galambos, of course, noted that zero percent control, total slavery, is impossible if the slave eats because his digestive organs will then have control over the food. It is my view that the original Galambos definition of coercion has caused us to look at the wrong thing. Because both freedom and ownership are defined in terms of control of property, even though property is the central element of society, it is the control of property 
rather than the property itself that should be our focus when defining interference. To do that, I propose this definition of interference. Any reduction in an owner's control of his property without his permission. Damage to property being included in the idea of reduction of control. Now, with an understanding of what intent and interference mean, and realizing that it is control of property that matters, we have a basis for modifying Galambos's definition of coercion. The original definition, any attempted intentional interference with property, can be revised to any attempted operationally intentional reduction of an owner's control of his property without his permission. There are at least three reasons why this is a good definition of coercion. First, it's an operational definition. Second, it makes the amount of coercion measurable. And third, it's based on control, consistent with the fundamental importance of control in Galambus's definition of freedom. Here's how the three most important words in volitional science look together when my suggestions are included. The result, I believe, is precise and unambiguous. Property is a volitional being's life and all non-procreative derivatives thereof. Freedom is the societal condition wherein individuals have full 100% control of their property. And coercion is any attempted operationally intended reduction of an owner's control over his property without his permission. Now that's the end of the paper, and I must say I am a fan. I do, however, have one issue with the text. Mr. Boren states that the opposite of freedom would be for an owner to have no 0% control of his property. I take issue with this assessment. It's nitpicky, but I do. If freedom is an absolute, then any amount of control that is not 100% would have to be the opposite. Columbus's definition of slavery, the control of property without the permission of the owner, does not include a quantitative measurement of the amount of control lost, and thus must include any amount of control for which 0.00001 would suffice. That is my only gripe. So, this paper should give you a little taste of the nature of what we call operational definitions and perhaps a little insight into why they are vital in volitional science. As I said before reading this paper, this can be some pretty heavy stuff, especially for those without full knowledge of Columbus's theory. But fear not, when we continue in the next episode, we are going to go over this stuff more slowly. And even if you wind up disagreeing, you will have full understanding of the derivations. All right, Mind Over Murder is next up. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Mind Over Murder case notes. We're continuing with the Taman Shud or the Somerton Man case. And in today's episode, we're gonna cover the first major lead in the case, the discovery of the Somerton Man's suitcase. And we're gonna go over the contents it contains. Now, I'm recording this intro after we recorded the episode, and I have to say that the contents of the bag alone are enough to make your head spin, okay? I know that I 
have more questions now than I did before it was found. So intriguing stuff to say the least, and you're not going to want to miss out on this one. So with that out of the way, let's get right down to it. All right, moving on to the next section is the first major lead. But before we do that, uh, there were a few things that we discussed last time um, that I think we've done a little research on and we need to follow up. One, I pulled up some maps and I thought the maps were were interesting. Um, but I want to, I, I, I think today we'll get into some stuff where the map is going to be the most useful. So I don't want to, uh, I don't want to talk about it yet. But I did find that the Bryant and May uh, matches. And the Bryant and May matches were, uh, it's a company that was predominantly in the UK, but they were also manufactured in Australia. So while that could lead us to England, it doesn't necessarily lead us to England. So I'm not sure that that's going to be all that helpful in the end. What was the other thing? The other thing that was the fact that he was uncircumcised. Uh, we mentioned it and then we never discussed it. Do you think it's relevant? Do you think it tells us I've, anything? Had he been circumcised, I would think that might tell us something because of the religious aspects of circumcision. However, we would have to know in 1948 were people who were not Jewish circumcised as they are today to a great extent. We may find out later on that there's some relationship. Okay. What about the hair? Do we think anything about his... No, it's not red hair. No, right? it's what was mousy it? ginger color, um, which interesting. I was looking up hair color and they were saying that Scotland, um, one in eight people have, and they use the term ginger colored hair, not necessarily red hair. Okay. And I think ginger color is somewhat different. It has more brown in it. Now, that's interesting. What else led us to something else was Scotland? Um, was it the cigarettes? Yeah, I think the uh, Canestra cigarettes. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, so let's continue on. The first major lead. Police decided to expand their search efforts as no one who recognized the photo had come forward. Because the man was not dressed for the weather or the location, they assumed he had been traveling. Well or they listened to episode one of our podcast. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> a call for abandoned property was sent to every hotel, dry cleaner, railroad station, bus station, and lost property office in the area. Okay, that makes sense. The very next day, police received their first break uh, in discovering the man's identity. A brown suitcase had been deposited in the Adelaide Railway Station's cloakroom on November 30th, so the day prior and never picked up, right? So it was now January 12th, and the property was considered abandoned. So because so much time had passed, the staff remembered nothing about the person who had dropped it off. However, a search of its contents yielded a promising item, uh, a reel of rare orange barber thread. Now, this is B-A-R-B-O-U-R. So it's um, barber is pure, 100% pure linen thread, the highest quality okay. flax. If I'm not 
mistaken, it did say specifically that it was that the the rip in the pocket was very well tailored. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Now, if he's got the thread, he's the tailor. And he obviously has, you know, skills in this area here. Could it be something else? Could it could it be that whoever had the suitcase had access to the to the thread? I don't know why they whoever this person was uh, would have uh, sewed up the pocket. I mean, I believe I, I'm I'm leaning toward this was foul play, and uh, somebody else was involved somehow. Sure, but involved in such a way where they would care about the torn I, about the hole in the in the in the pocket. I mean, would that be something where, um, I mean, if you're okay, so let's say that you're removing uh, labels. Yes. Right, but there's not going to be a label in the pocket, is there? No. No. So if you were removing labels and and you tore the 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 pocket. In the process of doing that, you might fix the pocket to make it seem as though, oh, this is just a, a, a normal tear. But there's not going to be a label in the pocket. That doesn't make sense. No, it's, it's very um, confusing. So a reel of rare orange barber thread not found in Australia, okay, was among the items in the suitcase. Uh, this thread was a perfect match for the orange thread used to repair the trouser pocket. Between that unlikely match and the luggage being dropped off the day before the body was discovered, it seems almost certain that the suitcase belonged to the Somerton man. I would have to agree. Yes. Uh, Further investigation was disappointing. A label had been torn off the suitcase. Well, okay. Uh, To hide its origin. That's an assumption. It's a good assumption, but it is an assumption. But... Let's, it was torn off. Who would have done that? It, 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 does that um, suggest somebody besides the Somerton man? Unless the Somerton, oh wait, unless the Somerton man were running away from something and he did not want anybody to know from where he, was, he came and to where he was going. We still don't know. We don't know. And I think that this goes back to Um, Because so much time, the staff remembered nothing about the person who had dropped it off. Do we know that it was the Somerton man who who left it at left luggage? We do not. It could have been someone else. However, it is the 30th. Now, if we go back to when the body was, he was seen at the beach the 30th evening, night. He was seen being carried the 30th early morning so if he was being carried the 30th early morning he could not have then dropped it off at the at the station and that means Uh. that indeed the tag being ripped off of the suitcase was to hide its origin or it could not have been the Somerton man who dropped off the case did it say the case or it couldn't have been the Somerton man who was being carried. So, exactly. So, these two clues are, they contradict each other. Either he was carried and that he did not drop the suitcase off or 
he wasn't carried in the wee hours of November 30th. But instead, later on that day sometime, he dropped off the suitcase. Or um, or could it be what you said? He uh, removed the tags himself to not be tracked. But if we accept that the the man in 1958 saying that he saw somebody carrying another a man carrying another man somebody carrying hmm. somebody else then yeah. the Somerton man could not have dropped that suitcase off um, labels or no labels that wasn't he right. but if somebody else dropped the suitcase off they would have put tags on it even if the Somerton man had dropped it off tags would have been on it after it was dropped off when would those tags have been tor- torn off well, they must have Am been, I, I mean, nobody in left luggage is going to tear the tag. Then off. how? It must have arrived. Here's the thing. Don't you get a claim check? You do. And it matches something on the suitcase. On the on the suitcase. There doesn't seem to be a claim check anywhere in the, um, on, on, uh, on the Summerton man's body. Mm. Now, we have to assume that the, that the bag arrived with no tags on it. Right. Yeah. I mean, what do they do? They wrap a they wrap a number around the handle. Yeah. And then they give you the the, the stub. Correct. What happened to that right? tag around the handle? We don't know that it's not there. It could be there. Um, I think we have to go with there are two scenarios. He, the Summerton man, took off the labels so that he would not be traced. Left the bag at left luggage and then something happens to him Mm -hmm. and he is not the man who is being carried that morning or Mm. um or he is the man being carried that morning someone other than him drops his bag off that accounts for the missing baggage tag uh, baggage claim check correct I mean, I guess there could be a combination, but I, I don't think so. And I think that it's so, it's so improbable that you've got so many odd things happening at this one beach. He has to be the man who is being carried. So therefore, the bag is left by someone else who also takes the claim check with him. I think that's the only way to, I think we have to conclude that. Yeah. Okay, tags and labels had been removed from all but three of the pieces of clothing. The tags bore the name, the the remaining tags, obviously, bore the name T. Keen, K-E-A-N-E. But a search revealed no missing person with that name. A search of what? I don't know. How international was that search? Uh, The police concluded that those tags were left on knowing the dead man's name was not T. Keen, and therefore would not reveal anything if found. Do you see where that conclusion has any tangible merit? No, I don't, frankly. I think that that's um, wishful thinking. Lazy thinking. I mean, I, I don't see one person here so far who has a a, a deep desire just out of this uh, curiosity and integrity of their position as a detective 
to get to the bottom of this. No, I would. I, 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 agree. I mean, illustrated yeah. by they looked only in Australia with all clues showing that he had been traveling. Exactly. Yeah. And then here, get this. Although it was noted that uh, they were the, the labels that were removed were the only labels that couldn't be removed without damaging the clothing. Yeah. So mix those two things together, and I think that the conclusion by the police um, is ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. Also noteworthy in the suitcase was a stencil kit that would have been used for stenciling cargo on merchant ships, a table knife that had been sawed down, that's all interesting. Airmail cards that indicated he was sending communications abroad and a coat with stitch work identified as American in origin. Um, these items indicated someone who had traveled or worked, right, mm-hmm. on a merchant ship, uh, most likely on a merchant vessel, but shipping and immigration records revealed no leads. Um <laughs> Revealed no leads as far as what? As far as T. Keen? Or, I mean, did they check every merchant marine? Merchant... Vessels. Uh, uh, somebody worked on a, on, a, on a ship? How did they do that? Um, and what immigration records? The ones, um, people who immigrated to Australia, under what name? Well, I mean, what would they... They didn't have much... I'm not surprised that they found nothing because they had so little upon which to uh, make their search. What's the protocol as far as, let's say this guy works on a, on a merchant vessel, right? Mm-hmm. It comes in. He's not, he's just on, he gets off the boat. He's on what? Shore leave. What papers, what, what visas do you have? What immigration information do you have? This guy is attached to a boat. He could be one of many people attached to that boat. I'm not sure this tells us much. Okay. Discovering the suitcase did clear up a few details about the Summerton man's final day. Um, He must have gone to the train station and purchased uh, the ticket to Henley Beach that was found in his pocket. Well, why? Because he couldn't have purchased it from anywhere else. Okay. So let's presume that that's what... Yeah. yeah, but discovering the suitcase did clear up. That this got nothing to suitcase. Are they? Once again, I think the police are concluding that because his bag was in left luggage, it was he who went to the station to buy the ticket. Yes, which I think we've discussed enough to uh, put a lot of holes in in that assumption. All right, everyone, that'll do it for today. Let me remind you that in order to get the weekly case notes four days prior to the release of the Rational Apprentice podcast, and you'll need those four days to read through and mull the facts over in your head, you need to go over to the website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. In addition to the Mind Over Murder case notes, we'll have studies, practices, and you can keep up to date with everything that's going on over here. We have a lot of courses and bonus materials coming in the near future, and I know you'll want to get a hold of those when they come out. So head on over to therationalapprentice.com slash subscribe to sign up now. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.